ministry in the church and every student ministry, college ministry remains my favorite. Y'all are wrestling with all of the huge, important questions of uh, who should I marry? What job should I get? Where should I live? Uh, you know, all, all the big ones. And those are like the most important things. And so I'll talk about any time, any time with, with any of those things with you, any time. Because th- that's so fun. Uh, it's... Yeah, I am always jealous of, of Sean and his ministry. Uh, and uh, excited to be with y'all here. H- have you noticed that when people talk about heaven, they never picture this, right? You at least have a slightly better view. But uh, when people talk about heaven, they think of lush, they think of green, they think of garden. Maybe you think of cities and technology and urban but never the Mojave Desert. Uh, and yet, we're going to have an amazing time here, though it's not like heaven at all. Uh, and we, are, we are diving in for this whole retreat on the book of Revelation. Uh, I know Nigel came in and taught on Revelation. How many of y'all were here for that? He taught on eschatology, more proper, but yeah. Okay, about half to thirds is pretty good. So uh, he, he taught on Revelation, and I just want to know what, what comes to mind when you think Revelation? Talk to me. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. The end. Judgment. <laughs> what else? Final victory. Final victory. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> You're prepped. If you met somebody who said, I really like the book of Revelation. What would you assume about them? <laughs> they're weird. <laughs> that, they like. that they understand it. That's generous. Okay. <laughs> Dang. They're Chris Ike. They're Chris Ike. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? They like to argue. They like to argue. Mm. <laughs> they're nerdy. They're nerdy. You animals. Did, did, on the way here, um, did any of y'all stop in Searchlight? It's like that little town with uh, a casino, and you stopped. Did anyone go into the McDonald's? Wow, no. Yeah, you didn't miss it. Okay. <laughs> so we, we were definitely in the bathroom and didn't want to corrupt the houseboat yet. So we uh, stopped, and we're looking for a place, and it's there's the, the one casino right at the, the place where you go straight. And uh, we thought, okay, looking down to the right, there's a McDonald's. McDonald's are always safe. And uh, we felt dreadfully misled and deceived about what that McDonald's was. Because you walk in and it smells of smoke and it's a convenience store. And then it's clean restrooms here, far away from the actual McDonald's. And then the McDonald's is this small area that's like blocked off with sliding doors. And it wasn't a McDonald's. It wasn't what it made it out to be. It was totally a um, a deception. It was like, it was... I misunderstood what McDonald's would be there. Uh, it was so disappointing. And uh, a lot of times when, when people come to this book, Revelation, they totally misunderstand and come into it with wrong expectations for what the book of Revelation is going to be about. They think it's going to be one thing when in fact it is something entirely different. They miss the entire focus of it because I don't remember who said it, but I think they were primed a little bit. The book is about Jesus. And that's what makes it actually enjoyable. Uh, the rest of it is 
totally not enjoyable. I, you have like the best advantage because you get to see everything happening, mm. and I just want to keep looking. <laughs> so, if some, you gotta do this for me. If something really cool happens, can you just point and tell yeah. me so that I can know yeah. to look? Because like right now, I just want to like what happened. <laughs> okay, so, thank you. All right, so so Revelation, everyone misses the point of it because they get caught up, right? What's the beast? There's a dragon. There's 144,000 what? Like, it, it's got all these really strange things, but um, it has a way more simple message than people make out to be. So I know you have your Bible, so at least most of y'all do, except for James. So uh, if you can open up to Revelation, oh, he does now. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, I just want you to look at the very beginning of it. Somebody read it. Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. You do have to project. Hopefully you can hear me. Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. Read it loud, someone. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Okay, good. Uh, you probably read this and didn't notice the most amazing thing in here, though. Like, I only got it the last time I looked at it, uh, as I was prepping for this message. And even in past times when I've taught this, I didn't even notice it, because it's so cool. So, um... The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. This is good. So we know the book is about Jesus. That's helpful. But who is the revelation given to? John. No! No. Yes. No. It was communicated to John. No, it's, it's Christ. Who is the revelation given to? To Jesus. Yep. Isn't that cool? The Father the whole message of revelation to Jesus. And then Jesus sends it by way of angel to John. So it's a message about Jesus from Jesus given to him by God. Very good. Because when Christ was on earth, he says, right, uh, it's not even for the Son to know when he's returning. And here he's saying, God basically revealed more of it for me to communicate to you. That's the point of it here. Uh, right, God gave him Jesus to show to his sponsors, to his followers, the things which must soon take place. So cool. So the whole book is just filled with stuff like that. And it, as some of y'all said, the, the person who received it ultimately was John, the, the Apostle John. At this point, he is the only apostle living. Everyone else has died off. We're in the, the mid to late 90s AD. And John, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, you can see it there. Uh, the tail end, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom, perseverance, which is in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Um, that does not mean that God led him in a vision to go to Patmos. That means because I was faithful to the word of God and declaring who Christ was, the Roman Empire banished me to Patmos. Uh, he was not even in Rome at the time. It's a crazy story. He's already the last, the last guy. He's in Domitian's reign. Nero was already dead. He'd already, according to church tradition, been boiled in oil and lived, which doesn't seem like a great thing in a sense. Like, I don't know that I want the life after that. Uh, but he endured and stayed faithful to Christ. And uh, he actually went out to the Romans, to the edges, what's called Asia Minor back then, today, modern-day Turkey. He was ministering out there in the far reaches. This would be like, uh, he's in Montana in the U.S. Like, you know, nobody finds you there. And uh, instead, North Dakota, whatever you want to use. Uh, instead, the Roman Empire still finds him, and they banish him uh, out of the empire entirely to a little island called Patmos. And it's this. It's this. 
Like, seriously, you just look around you, because I pulled up some pictures of it. This is like where he lived without fresh water. There, there was a, a few ground springs. And it was a place, uh, a few, a string of islands where they would just banish people that they hated, but they couldn't, didn't want to kill for political reasons. So he's living in a cave. He's in his, um, he's in his 80s, and he's the only living apostle left, and God sends this vision to him. It's just the most amazing thing, um, because he's the pastor to Asia Minor, to all these churches, and uh, it is not a happy time for the church. Uh, in our day, we hear about, maybe you've heard about uh, Emperor Nero and how he would like burn Christians and Jews as torches in his garden. Uh, he blamed the burning of Rome on the Jews. Nero actually wasn't that bad compared to the guy who's in power when John's alive now. Uh, that was Domitian. Nero would be, have these intense persecutions that would kind of flare up and then go back down, and they would just be regional. Domitian was uh, their emperor now, and he's hardcore because he goes empire-wide, and he's relentless. Like, they don't stop. He actually brings, the guy who brings back the uh, cult of emperor worship, where they believe that the Roman emperor is a god, and everyone in the town needs to worship him, and they would actually erect a idol, uh, a, a statue of the town, and everyone in the town of the emperor, everyone would have to go to bow down before the statue. If you didn't do that, you would be crucified outside the town. Like, that's Domitian way harder core in terms of per religious persecution than Nero was. And that's who John is, is where John's living, why he's in exile, and uh, basically the church who needs this message at this time. They needed to hear Jesus as their coming. They needed to hear that Jesus is returning. And that's why they get this message. It's not John's message, it's Jesus' message. And it is incredible. Uh, I think you're really going to like it. Now, every once in a while, somebody asks me a question. What do you think Jesus looked like? You ever wonder that? Okay, so have a go at it. What, what would you say? Pretty buff. Pretty buff. <laughs> He's a carpenter. Okay. Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> Good guess. He is, in fact. So what does that mean? Probably dark, darker skin Dustin for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Seinfeld. Seinfeld, yeah. <laughs> so what, is it, what does it mean? Darker skin? Darker skin, probably. Okay. Yeah, so not American Jew, but Middle Eastern yeah, Jew. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good, just good distinction. I've got a blue sash of some kind. That's got to be a book before, right? It's an old... <laughs> <laughs> just always wore it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Related> sashes. <laughs> Thank you, Ike. <laughs> No, that's it's, awesome. It's just funny. <laughs> uh, definitely would have, uh, he would have been relatively ripped, at least early in his life. Naturally curly hair, olive skin, absolutely. Um, I, I don't know what you mentally envision, but most people, when they, when they think about Jesus, their, uh, their mental image of Christ is not very faithful to how Scripture portrays Christ. And that's true, not just in terms of what he looked like, but in terms of who he is. The way that they think about Christ is usually a pretty confined image to who Jesus really is. And the book of Revelation is going to help us unpack who Jesus really is. If you don't know who Christ is, my goal for you is for you to see the truth of that. This today and this weekend. Even if you think you know who Jesus is, I think you're going to be encouraged and, and fall more in love with him as a result of it. And become, hopefully, even more excited to see him when he returns one day. So the big question today is, 
do you know who Jesus is? Do you really know who Jesus is? And at the outset of John's vision, he gives us this amazing description of who Jesus is. Just in the whole introduction, he gives us, because there's all these pictures of Jesus through Revelation, he gives us our very first picture of Jesus. Look at verses 4 and 5. Uh, actually, step somebody read it. 4 and 5. Loud. You have to be loud. Thank you. Okay, okay. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Awesome. So, he starts off, he gives them, let me just explain it, he gives this Trinitarian greeting that's kind of, you. if you've read other New Testament letters, you see grace and peace to you. That's pretty normal. And he throws in pretty much the whole Trinity, <laughs> right? From him who was and who is and who is to come. It's the description of God the Father. Uh, it's often that description is used for Jesus, but here it's talking about the Father emphasizing his eternality. Basically saying to, to Jews who are persecuted, Jews who are having a tough time, believe, sorry, not Jews, believers who are having a tough time, he says, God's always been there. He always will be there, right? Grace will come to you from him. Peace will come to you from him. And then he says this crazy thing that made me do a double take when I read it. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. And I know, like, I'm a pastor, but, like, I still scratched my head when I read that one. Like, is this angels? Well, what, what is he talking about? Are there seven holy spirits? And it, it's pretty crazy. I, and so I looked up cross-references because the same word is used, the same description is used in Revelation 4, Revelation 5. And in those contexts, they're like, they're absolutely divine. And when it's surrounded by God and Jesus, it's divine. So he's talking about the Spirit, which is even more of a head-scratcher to be like, is there seven? So I'm just trying to resolve it, and we're just moving on quickly. But if you look at Zechariah chapter 4 and 5, he's actually looking back, and it's informed from that, and it's a description that... Um, an image that Zechariah uses to talk about the spirits, uh, basically his, him being spread throughout all the earth. And uh, so that, that's all that's being talked about there. It's his uh, divine view of Jesus of uh, the spirit. So kind of crazy. Uh, and there's stuff crazy all through Revelation, but it's really fun. And then he gets into the description of Jesus. But the thing that you stand out, okay, look, just look at it. One, four, five, what, four. One description of the Father. Right, his and was and is to come. One description of the Spirit, the seven spirits here before his throne. And then he gets to Jesus, and like that's the whole rest of the thing. It's him just going off on who Jesus is. And that's what he does. Uh, it, he's amazed and in awe of who Christ is. This is why he's in exile. And he just starts to extol and uh, give praise to the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the future reign of Christ. And so as we work through the text, which we're going to do, uh, he blamed the burning of Rome on the Jews. Nero actually wasn't that bad compared to the guy who's in power when John's alive now. Uh, that was Domitian. Nero would be have these intense persecutions that would kind of flare up and then go back down, and they would just be regional. Domitian was uh, their emperor now, and he's hardcore because he goes empire-wide, and he's relentless. Like, they don't stop. 
he actually bring the guy who brings back the uh, cult of emperor worship, where they believe that the Roman emperor is a god mm-hmm. and everyone in the town needs to worship him. They would actually erect a idol, uh, a, a statue of the town, and everyone in the town of the emperor, everyone would have to go to bow down before the statue. If you didn't do that, you would be crucified outside the town. Like that's Domitian, way harder core in terms of per- religious persecution than Nero was. And that's who John is, is where John's living, why he's in exile, and uh, basically the church who needs this message at this time. They needed to hear Jesus as their coming. They needed to hear that Jesus is returning. And that's why they get this message. It's not John's message, it's Jesus' message. And it is incredible. Uh, I think you're really going to like it. Now, every once in a while, somebody asks me a question. What do you think Jesus looked like? Do you ever wonder that? Okay, so have a go at it. What what would you say? Pretty buff. Pretty buff. <laughs> He's a carpenter. Okay. Jewish. Jewish. <laughs> Good guess. He is, in fact. So what does that mean? Probably dark, darker skin Dustin for that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Seinfeld. Seinfeld, yeah. <laughs> so what is it? What does it mean? Darker skin. Darker skin, probably. Okay. Yeah. So not American Jew, but Middle Eastern yeah, Jew. Yeah. Okay. Good, just good distinction. Mm-hmm. I got a blue sash of some kind. That's gotta be a book before, right? It's an old. You <laughs> <laughs> just always wore it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. sashes. Thank you, Ike. <laughs> no. That's awesome. This is funny. Uh, definitely would have, uh, he would have been relatively ripped, at least early in his life. Naturally curly hair, olive skin, absolutely. Um, I, I don't know what you mentally envision, but most people, when they when they think about Jesus, their uh, their mental image of Christ is not very faithful to how Scripture portrays Christ, and that's true not just in terms of what he looked like, but in terms of who he is. The way that they think about Christ is usually a pretty confined image to who Jesus really is, and the Book of Revelation is going to help us unpack. Jesus really is. If you don't know who Christ is, my goal for you is for you to see the truth of that this today and this weekend. Even if you think you know who Jesus is, I think you're going to be encouraged and, and fall more in love with him as a result of it and become hopefully even more excited to see him when he returns one day. So the big question today is, do you know who Jesus is? Do you really know who Jesus is. And at the outset of John's vision, he gives us this amazing description of who Jesus is. Just in the whole introduction, he gives us, because there's all these pictures of Jesus through Revelation, he gives us our very first picture of Jesus. Look at verses 4 and 5. Uh, actually, Steph, somebody read it. 4 and 5. Loud. You have to be loud. Thank you. Oh, okay. I got it. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Awesome. So, he starts off, he gives them, let me just explain it, he gives this Trinitarian greeting that's kind of, you. if you've read other New Testament letters, you see grace and peace to you. That's pretty normal. And he throws in pretty much the whole Trinity, <laughs> right? From him who was and who is and who is to come. 
this description of God the Father. Uh, it's often that description is used for Jesus, but here it's talking about the Father emphasizing his eternality. Basically saying to, to Jews who are persecuted, Jews who are having a tough time, believe, sorry, not Jews, believers who are having a tough time, he says, God's always been there. He always will be there, right? Grace will come to you from him. Peace will come to you from him. And then he says this crazy thing that made me do a double take when I read it. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. And I know, like, I'm a pastor, but, like, I still scratched my head when I read that one. Like, is this angels? Well, what, what is he talking about? Are there seven holy spirits? And it, it's pretty crazy. I, and so I looked up cross-references because the same word is used, the same description is used in Revelation 4, Revelation 5. And in those contexts, they're like, they're absolutely divine. And when it's surrounded by God and Jesus, it's divine. So he's talking about the spirit, which is even more of a head-scratcher to be like, is there seven? So I'm just trying to resolve it, and we're just moving on quickly. But if you look at Zechariah chapter 4 and 5, he's actually looking back, and it's informed from that. And it's a description that... Um, an image that Zechariah uses to talk about the spirits, uh, basically his, him being spread throughout all the earth. And uh, so that, that's all that's being talked about there. It's his uh, divine view of Jesus of uh, the spirit. So kind of crazy. Uh, and there's stuff crazy all through Revelation, but it's really fun. And then he gets into the description of Jesus. But the thing that you stand out, okay, look, just look at it. One, four, five, what, four. One description of the Father. Right, his and was and is to come. One description of the spirit, the seven spirits here before his throne. And then he gets to Jesus, and like that's the whole rest of the thing. It's him just going off on who Jesus is. And that's what he does. Uh, it, he's amazed and in awe of who Christ is. This is why he's in exile. And he just starts to extol and uh, give praise to the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the future reign of Christ. And so as we work through the text, which we're going to do, I just want to say, do you know who Christ is? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? Are you ready for his return? That, that's what he's pressing us to wrestle with this morning. When we look at that, that first issue of do you know who Jesus is, in verse 5, he uses three descriptions of Jesus. What are they? Just look at him and talk to me. This is We're in the grade school question level, okay? Faithful witness. Faithful witness, number one. Firstborn, Firstborn from the dead, number two. Ruler. Ruler. Ruler of the kings and earth. Ruler of the kings of the earth. Excellent, yeah. So that, that's it. Those are the three, right? Faithful witness. Um seems like it's a description of what John 1.18 says when the Apostle John earlier wrote, no one has seen the God at any time, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, uh, but Christ has explained him. That seems like what he's saying, that he was faithful to witness and testify to all that all that Christ was. Hebrews chapter 3 says something, or all that God was. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 says the same thing, that Jesus was faithful to the Father, that he was born of a virgin so that no sin nature would be imparted, imputed to him, uh, that he came perfectly sinless from birth, from conception. He had the fullness of God dwelling in him. He self-limited that, uh, that so that it wouldn't be fully manifest. But he came to earth so that we would see God and we would know God, right? Around age 30, he begins his public ministry, moving from construction into uh, teaching. He calls 12 men to follow him. He teaches them all that he can about the kingdom of God and his return. And then 
though he was sinless, according to the perfect plan of God, he is put to death. He's falsely accused by religious leaders, given over to the Romans, and hung on a cross to die. And to the very moment of his death, he's totally faithful to God, never sinning. He's this faithful witness that God commanded. But I don't think that's what's meant here. I, I don't think that's actually what John is saying. Because you look at the words that are used, that faithful witness, and um, just just do this. Remind me what's happening when John's writing. I told you so. Maybe you're paying attention. He's exiled. He's exiled. What's happening to the church? Persecution. They're persecuted. The, the word here for witness, the way it's used throughout um, 98% of the book of Revelation is actually synonymous with martyr. And what he's talking about here is that Christ was the first faithful martyr. That he was the first one put to death for what he believed. Uh, that he was the first one to be faithful in declaring God even to the point of death. And the emphasis is not on his faithfulness through life. The emphasis is on his faithfulness to the point of death. That's amazing, right? That Jesus isn't just this man of God who lived long ago, but he was this man of God who was killed long ago and refused to back down from his declaration of self-deity, right? He was a man put to death long ago for saying that he was the Savior sent to save the world. The only begotten Son from the Father, that he and the Father are one. Right? He is the faithful witness. And that, that's what's here. And, and so, any Christian suffering is following in the footsteps of Christ. Any footstep Christian who's martyred is following in the steps of Christ. He's the first faithful martyr. And then it moves on to say he's, from that image, he's, what, second, the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. And, and here, Jesus is using the same words that Paul used in Colossians chapter 1 to describe Christ being the firstborn from the dead, uh, except here it says of instead of from. And the, the phrase is not that he was literally born from death, but the, the, the focus is on his preeminence, his superiority, how he's better than anything. Not just that he rules over the dead, but that he was the first of many, many people who would rise up from the dead. Mm -hmm. So he was the first martyr, and he was the first out of a bunch who are going to be resurrected, right? I, um, long ago, uh, I'm surprised how long ago it was now, uh, I went to seminary, I had preaching class, and uh, whenever I would be in class and they would look for volunteers, uh, I would be the first to volunteer. I was the first to volunteer, not because I was so excited and ready to do it. I was the first to volunteer because I thought the bar would be a little bit lower when there's no comparison, right? Like, there, there's no one to compare me to, and so I'm going to be first because it's going to go better for me rather than they hear that guy who I know is good, right? <laughs> Jesus doesn't make that decision. Like, that's not why he was first, right? He, he didn't go first because he wanted to get it out of the way or there was somebody better who was going to come later. There was no self-motivation. Jesus in died on the cross and endured the cross for this reason so that he could bear the full weight of God's wrath towards all Christian sins on the cross that's why and, and it's an amazing story for what happened because you think like you just it's hard to envision what happened but culturally everyone situationally everyone knew something was up because the sky goes dark 
in the middle of the day. Right, like there's there's weird things that start happening when God separates Himself from the Son, and this is when Christ calls out, "Aloy, aloy, lama sabachthani." Right, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in Christ's existence when He knows separation from God. Why does the Son experience separation from God? Because because of our sins. It's the the reason. Because He's the firstborn from the dead. Because. He wanted to reconcile us to God. Now, we grew up in a state of separation from God. Like, you, I, we were all born separated from God. You, if you're a Christian, you know the, the pain, that feeling of separation sometimes when you, you sin and you feel distant from God. Some, some of you may never have known even what it feels close to God. Um, and we're praying that changes this weekend. But Christ had never known a feeling of separation from God. And on the cross, what happens is God pours out his anger and wrath and punishment for every sin you've ever committed and I've ever committed and God's ever committed and every believer has ever committed onto Christ in that moment. And Jesus took it, not, not just took it, but he took it without complaint. He took it in silence. And after hours of this agony, we know it ends because Jesus utters, it is finished. And it says he breathed his last and died. That's how John 19 describes it. And at that point, Jesus Christ's body began to decay physically. His spirit was reunited with God at that point. And three days later, his spirit and body were reunited and he was resurrected. That's the time it's describing right now when he is the firstborn from the dead. He's literally reborn from the dead. He receives a glorified body and his spirit is reunited with it, which is a picture of what every Christian receives, which is crazy, right? And so John here is just saying Jesus is the first of many of us for this, whom that's going to happen to. And to believers back then who are facing death, John's saying, it's just short. It, it, it's short. The, the, the sufferings, the trials you have in your life, they're short. Christian, you're going to be reborn, right? And so whether that happens today on a tubing run, which it might, I've seen you driving. Uh, it, it could happen with a medical issue. It could happen on a drive home. It could happen a decade from now, or maybe when Christ returns next week. We don't know when, but we know that we don't need to fear that. that that's the point here. So who's Christ? He's a faithful martyr. He's the firstborn from the dead. It's two Fs. You'd think there'd be another, but John's not like that. So uh, there's a ruler, ruler of the kings of the earth. That's the third one, right? Ruler of the kings of the earth, which in our day with Trump feels a little incredible. And in their day, with Alexander the Great, Nero, Domitian, all these tyrants who just killed people, is all the more incredible to say that Christ rules over them, that he is in charge of them. That even though evil men sit on the throne sometimes, Christ is always ruling over them. Words that are intended to give peace and confidence. Right? It's easy to be fearful and worrying about what's going on in our world and in our country and the world today to be fearful of those. It's more easy to be worried about what's happening at work, in our family, <laughs> everywhere. And John writes here, for our benefit, Jesus is the ruler of the greatest authorities on earth. 
Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, which just means for them and for us, we don't need to be worried. He knows what he's doing, and he doesn't promise you peace. That's uh, a misconception of how people often think about Jesus, that he came to bring peace to your life. And there's not really a promise of that. There's a promise of persecution. There's promises of trials. There's promises of difficulties. There's not really a promise of peace, though there is a promise of heavenly rest. But not not of present peace. But in the midst of that crazy conflict and trial and tribulation, we're given the peace of God in our hearts, and we're given the ability to have faith in Christ, that He rules over all things. That's just a, a little bit of how he describes who Jesus is. And then he gets to who, what Jesus has done in verse 6. It, it's, it actually starts in verse 5. It's just incredible. He's just giving all these praises to Christ. Look at verse 5 in the middle. He starts, he starts it. To him who loves us. To him who released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Got this old man. He's um a burn victim. Okay? 80-year-old burn victim. Literally true. He is looking back at his life. He's not had an easy life. He's had to leave his home, Jerusalem. Uh, he's had to leave his country, the Roman Empire. And he's been banished to an island to live in a cave, uh, off not much. And his government has literally tried to kill him. And failing that, they got rid of him. And he is overflowing with praise for Christ. We make a big deal out of how we've been treated in the past. And we are prone to complaining and feeling mistreated and questioning God and his motives. And here John shows us something different. That we can forget about what's in our past because of the great things that Jesus has done. Right? And John starts it off here in verse 5 just by saying, He loves us. He loves us. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter how great your sin, no matter if you were a thief, a homosexual, a liar, a, a bully, sexually promiscuous, a gossip, a witch, whatever, no matter what the sins are, Even when you hated God, He loves you. He loves you. And I I put it past tense, and He puts it present tense. It would be amazing enough just to say in the past He loved us, but He actually is present tense, ongoing, He faithfully, enduringly loves you. Right? It's the only passage, actually, in all of Scripture that describes Jesus actively, presently, loving you. Jesus, the incarnate God of all of creation, the one who made everything, he loves you, right? The one who's the ruler over all the kings, he loves you, right? He loves you individually. The one who cannot die, the one who has power over death, the one who is the judge of all creation, he loves you. It's incredible that he's done that. Right? A love that began in the past, before the cross, that was manifest most magnificently on the cross. Even though it existed before creation, we see it culminate there on the cross. And even to today, He loved And the consequence of that, the second thing He mentioned, is He released us. He released us from our sins by His blood. Right? 
that, that's what he says there. He releases from our sins by his blood. He set you free from your bondage to sin. Romans chapter 6, if you want to read it later, it describes that whole process in great detail. How we were enslaved to sin. We could do nothing other than sin. <laughs> the, the good things we wanted to do were completely tainted by sin. Uh, Pat read Ephesians chapter 2 earlier. says the same thing, that we were enslaved. We were in bondage to it. We had no choice but to do evil. Christ set us free from that, right? So that we, as, as believers who have put our hope in Jesus Christ, we, we have the opportunity, we have the choice to obey. We can't choose to do something else. And, and some of you know well what it feels like to be in bondage to sin. But when somebody puts their hope in Christ, he pays for their sin on the cross, and he sets them free from their sin. And so the, a Christian may still sin, we all still sin, and it's not a choice. It's not forced. Which there's a sense in which it makes it more heinous, more, more treacherous, and yet we still have the active love of Christ alongside of it. Right? Before salvation, there's no choice, always rebelling against God without any opportunity. Instead, we're ens- we were enslaved to the evil one, and now through Christ, we have the freedom to obey him. Why? Because his blood replaced ours. That's what it says. Leviticus, this is a look back at Leviticus 17, uh, where it says uh, it's blood by reason of life that makes atonement. It used to be back in the Old Testament, they would sacrifice goats and bulls uh, in an exchange uh, where the, the goat or the bull would be laid on the altar and his life would be given in exchange for the sins that were committed. And now Christ is the perfect sacrifice, the one-time sacrifice for all people. His blood is exchanged for yours in a perfect way. Mm. And so Romans chapter 6, verse 22, it says, Having been freed from sin now and enslaved to God, we derive our benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Amen. So we're no longer slaves of sin, servants of God. And because of that, the thing we see here is he made us to be a kingdom. Uh, we, uh, we can now serve God, which is far more radical than it sounds. It sounds like, great, I can serve in church. Uh, let me put it this way. You know LeBron James? You used to be the LeBron James of serving yourself. Like, you could dominate anyone in terms of being self-serving. You could outdo anyone. And it's like you switched sports, right? You went from the sport of serving yourself basketball to, like, curling or something like that. Ridiculous that nobody understands, right? Because now you want to serve God. And nobody understands that. It's not curling. Uh, get it still. Uh... You are doing something that few people really do as a believer, right? You, you've moved your allegiance. You're no longer about self and self-will. You seek to serve God with your life. God sets you free. Christ sets you free for that purpose, loving you, freeing you from your sins, making you into a servant of God alongside of other believers so that you can bring Him glory rather than yourself. And that, that's, he even goes bigger on it by saying, and he made us to be priests to his God and Father. Right? And if you grew up Catholic, you have completely the wrong image. Okay? So he's not talking in the image of priests like you see in the Catholic Church. He's not talking about your attire or robes or Latin or incense or anything like that. He, in, he, what he's saying, in essence, back then... Priests were the ones who had direct access to God, right? It was the high priest who could enter into the Holy of Holies. And he's saying here, as a kingdom of priests, you now have direct access to God. Amen. 
in a way that believers never did before as a Christian what Christ has done. Him alone, he has granted you direct access to God so that you don't need an intermediary anymore. You don't need a goat to be between you and him. You don't need a priest to be between you and him. You don't need a preacher to be between you and him. You have the word of God, you have the spirit in your heart, and you have Christ on the cross and down from the cross so that you can have direct access to God. Amen. Right? There's, there's nothing hindering it. I call, a, um, I call my bank and I get um, the, like the, the keypad system from hell. Right, like where it just gives me voice prompt after voice prompt, and I press zeros and stars, and I yell support, and and I can get nothing. No one ever. I never get to a human. There's nothing separating us from God and man. Right? There's nothing separating us from direct communication to the Father, and from from the Father's direct love and care from us. That, that's his point, that there's nothing required, no priest to mediate, no sacrifice to cover, no need for you to gain his favor, no need for you to try and win God's affection, which is what most people in the world still are trying to do, right? To live in a way that's pleasing him so that he would do things that they want him to do. That, that's, that's not necessary anymore. Jesus has done it all. He's done it all. That's the work of Christ. And it's it's so, it sounds theological, it's so not theological, right? Because you have believers who say, yeah, I, I know that, I understand that, I, I, I get those truths, but their lives don't reflect that because they live in depression, hmm. right? And I understand that we can have dark days, but, but to be enduringly depressed, feeling apart from Christ's love, is so contrary to what Scripture portrays, hmm. right? For a Christian to feel like they're enslaved to sin. Again, completely contrary to, to the truth of who you are in Christ Jesus. Amen. You can't be enslaved to sin and be a Christian, right? If your life is not lived in service, you're missing the point of your salvation. Right? All of this is fleshed out in our lives. Our lives need to reveal access to God. You have a Bible, right? I have a Bible, I have the ability to pray. If I'm a Christian, why would I not be taking advantage of these things? Mm -hmm. Talking regularly to God, reading God's Word, learning more about who He is and what He desires from my life. Right? So you can say, yeah, I know who Christ is. Yeah, I, I know what He's done. Does your life manifest? Does your life reflect that truth, that reality? If it doesn't, you've probably missed some truth somewhere. Right? That, that's the point here. It has real impact in how you live. How you live. And we see that in the conclusion. So what, what John concludes with is basically asking us, are you then ready for his return? If you say that you know who he is, and you say that you know what he's done for you, are you going to be excited when he comes back? Mm -hmm. That's verse 7. In the past, he died for our sins. Now he loves us. And... Then he says there's this future where Christ returns. Look at it. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. And then Christ reiterates and just puts his capper on it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, 
I, I don't know if you know it. I grew up in Georgia. If you hear me talk long enough, you'll hear me use y'all. Uh, that's remnant. They have to think about the only remnant from Georgia at this point. Uh, <laughs> that and a love for the Falcons. Two things. Oh. So, um, <laughs> uh, the, uh, I, in Georgia, we have thunderstorms. Like, not like the thunderstorms we have here. We have thunderstorms. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the kind that roll through and the earth shakes a little bit when the thunder hits and the lightning goes bright enough to, like, see across the street. <laughs> like, those kind of thunderstorms. And then you, like, hear the, the thunder echoing and fading afterwards. Uh, that's what I grew up with. And as I got older, and I would hear those. Sometimes, like, I, in the South, you grew up going to church. I, I would be like, is Jesus coming back now? Like, is that what is that what that sound is? Like, you'd wonder. And um, what this text says is, when Jesus comes back, everybody sees him. Mm. Everybody sees him. There's no mystery. There's no hiding it. There's no surprises to it, right? And I think he's going to take up his church before he comes back and everyone sees him because what what this text says. Look at it. There's grief when he returns, right? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And, and the emphasis here is on the sorrow and the remorse of those who rejected and despised Christ. Those who pierced him is not talking about that one soldier who actually stuck a spear in Christ's side. It's talking more broadly about those who have chosen not just to deny him or be ignorant of him, but those who've actively rejected him. And he's saying, they will all see him. The people who deny Christ's existence now will one day see him when he returns. It's incredible, right? And John's vision is just describing saying they are going to be unable to escape that. There's going to be no place to hide. You'll see that later in Revelation. They will want to hide. They will not be able to find a place to hide. There will be no place to hide. And they will fear for their lives because every person will see him return. And that's just so not the Jesus of Renaissance art. Right? That is so not the Jesus that most people picture in their heads when they think of Jesus. They don't think of somebody who everyone flees from when he returns. But that's the real Jesus. The people who did not embrace his active love for them, they are now terrified of him. He's the God of the whole universe. And, and for them, there's no comfort, only terror. And, and to the, the Christians in John's day, this would have been hope-giving. This would have been encouraging in an amazing way, right? Because he's saying, and to us, you might suffer unjustly now. You, you, might, you might be in a really unfair place, being totally mistreated, being literally abused, whether physically or verbally. But Jesus is on his way. Justice is going to be with him. And he's coming. He's on his way right now. Uh, it seems like every Christmas when I'm wrapping presents, I hear the garage door go up, and uh, that means everybody's coming into the house where I'm wrapping presents really quick, and so I, I gather everything, try and hide and shuffle it off into a closet or something so that they can't see what's happening. And, and what John says is when Jesus comes back, there's no garage door. There's no warning. He just opens the door, here I am! And, and everyone is held to account in that moment. Right, that you don't hear the key in the lock. He appears, every eye sees him. 
and it just begs this question of, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? A return that comes without you. Do you really know who he is so that you will be excited and not mourning when he returns? Mm. The, the promise of verse 7 is not he will come, but he is coming. Mm. It's not this future thing, but a very active of he's on his way. Are you ready for that? It's this first mention of his return. It foreshadows what to come. And if you've suffered wrong, he just says to you, be patient. Jesus is coming. Not he will come. He's coming. If the sins of others have worn on you and hurt you and torn you down, he says, endure it. Hmm. Endure it. Be patient. Hmm. Give them grace because he can't be the only grace they receive. If you are ensnared in sin, says Jesus is coming. Right, be ready. Be ready. Be not be caught unaware. Because on that day when Christ returns, every Christian, every Christian, whatever you're doing that moment, every Christian is going to rejoice when Christ returns. Amen. And every yeah. non-Christian is going to and fear and be terrified and so we're going to spend this whole weekend just talking about who is Christ what does it mean that he's returning what does it mean for us what does scripture promise and my greatest concern for you which you're going to hear is that you know and believe in Jesus Christ the real Jesus the God of the Bible not the one that's in your heads if you're unsure that if you're saved this weekend is for you Right, to help you figure that out. If, if you think church stuff is kind of eh, maybe taken casually, this weekend should help you with it. It'll clarify what's important and what's not. If you're walking faithfully with Christ, I think you're going to really enjoy this weekend. It's for you. And if your heart is to deal with sin and get right, it is for you as well. It, it's amazing. And Christ echoes this. Uh, verse 8. I just, I, you got to see the ending because it's so cool. You can hear, right? He says, I'm the Alpha. I'll just read it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's got these three statements of deity, which are just echoing. This is Christ speaking now, just affirming everything, Christ, everything that John said. And the Alpha and the Omega is so cool because it's saying... Basically, what you heard from your parents long ago. I brought you into this world, I'll take you out of it. <laughs> That's what Alpha and Omega means, okay? Like, I was there at the beginning, I'm going to be there at the end. That's it. He said, and then he says, and I'm there throughout the whole thing. Not just the beginning and end. Who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come. There through the whole thing, the Almighty, the most powerful, the most, the most powerful one. Sovereign over all things. And I am praying just like the 80-year-old burn victim who wrote this, that you fall down and worship before him. Mm -hmm. Father, make us expectant and ready for Christ and his return. Help us to fall more in love with him, just as the Apostle John was, that we would, we would have our eyes open to the truth of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Lord, as we go deeper and deeper into the truth of the gospel, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to know.
know Christ, to recognize the depths of their sins, their walk far away from you, and the power of